Thanks, Adam. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 9 this morning, work our way down to uh, through verse 17. So in your Bible, that's probably two sections, um, but we'll, we'll sort of piece all that together as we go. One of the things that the gospel does indiscriminately across various cultures and various uh, sort of societal structures is that the gospel is a pretty equal opportunity offender that whatever a culture or society might raise up is like really important within that culture or society, the gospel usually cuts across that in some form or fashion. And so in very interdependent cultures, like the cultures that scripture was written to, the gospel cuts across that in a pretty explosive way. So as to say, your family or your line of origin will not save you. Just because you were born into this group of people or born into this family, you will not just be saved because of that. And so as Jesus is preaching to Israelite people, that's a pretty explosive message that he gives. Flip that completely on its head because we live in a society that is very, very independent. In fact, we make independence almost like this virtue that we raise up to say, hey, what is really like peak human experience is to be able to live almost as an island unto yourself. Enter the gospel. The gospel would cut across that and say, yes, you will be saved only in and of yourself thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. But because of that, you will be brought into this new community that in a 1 Corinthians 12 kind of way is one body dependent on one another. So the gospel is just kind of equal opportunity, like offending both notions. You live in a really dependent place, you're going to be saved only on your own, by yourself, not because of what someone else in your family or your community does. You live in a very independent culture, the gospel brings you into this new community in a powerful sort of way. We're going to see one of those kinds of facets of Christianity that offends our sense of independence this morning. The landing point is this, that the king's people are entirely dependent on the king's mercy. If you've got your Bible open there, read with me starting in Luke 18, verse nine. It says this, he, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. People were bringing infants to him so he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, let the little children come to me and don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. God, we pray this morning that your spirit would move among us, take the truth of your word, press it deeply into our hearts. Bring it to life in us, God, in such a way that it fuels our worship and our submission to you. Empower us by the power of your spirit to be people who live in submission to your rule, to your reign, who walk in obedience to your word, who cling to the wonder of your cross. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Every once in a while, as we've worked our way through the gospel of Luke, we've kind of paused in order to remind ourselves where we are. So we're gonna do a little bit of that this morning. We'll do sort of big picture, kind of where are we in the immediate sense, and then we'll work through our passage. And what we're keeping in front of mind here is that the king's people are entirely dependent upon the king's mercy. And so as sort of like a big kind of recap of where we are in the gospel of Luke, I wanna start with the fact that Jesus's life is lived in the shadow of the cross, the whole thing. In fact, right from the beginning, in all of the four gospel accounts, we get little rumblings that we are supposed to read the entirety of Jesus's life in light of what happens at the end. In fact, in all four gospels, the passion account at the end makes up somewhere between a third and a half of those gospel narratives. So the end is the really important thing. And you actually get rumblings of that right from the beginning. Matthew 121, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Where's that gonna happen? The cross. John 1.29, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where's that going to happen? The cross. Luke starts with a collection of statements, both from humans and angels. And all of those statements are telling us that what happens at the end is the lens by which you're to look at everything through the beginning and the middle. So Gabriel says, now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Then Mary sings out in praise. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. Angels in a field to a group of shepherds. Today in the city of David, a savior has been born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Where is all of that coming to fruition? Ultimately at the cross. The gospel writers want their readers to know right from the start that something massive is happening. Sin is going to be forgiven. The long-awaited son of David has come and he is going to be king forever. The Messiah has arrived. The mercy of God and the fulfillment of his promises has come to his people and all of that is going to happen at the cross. Now, in the rest of Luke's gospel, what's happening? Well, 
Jesus is headed to the cross. His ministry starts in Galilee. It absolutely blows the doors off people. Like they can't figure out who this man is, even though he's clarifying for them. It's drawing massive crowds. And in Luke 9, verses 21 and 22, Jesus gives the first prediction of his suffering and death and resurrection. Then he turns right around and he tells the disciples that they need to take up their cross if they want to follow him. And then toward the end of chapter 9, we're told that Jesus determines to go to Jerusalem. Why? Well, because that's where the cross is. In Luke 13, Luke resets the scene, tells us in verse 22 that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. In verse 33 of Luke 13, out of Jesus' own mouth, we're told, it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside Jerusalem. At the start of the section that we've been in recently, Luke 17, verse 11, Luke resets the scene while traveling to Jerusalem. Why is Luke doing that constantly? Why is the whole movement of this long account that Luke wrote toward Jerusalem? Well, because that's where the cross is and Jesus is going there willingly and everything he does leading up to that is in the shadow of that event. All of Jesus' life, ultimately all of the Bible, is in the shadow of the cross. And it's at the cross, the entire event, like when we talk about the cross, not just his crucifixion, but also the resurrection, the ascension, the entirety of that passion, everything's going to converge. The covenants and promises of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled. Jesus will be displayed as king and Lord. Ironically, they literally put a sign on the cross and a crown on his head. As if they're not just screaming to the world the re eternal reality of who this man is. The kingdom of God is going to break the stronghold of Satan and his evil. Judgment will come falling on the sun. Salvation will be secured for a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Mercy will triumph because he gets the punishment that we deserve. And grace will be extended because we get the rewards that he earned. The great narrative of the Bible is culminating at the cross. The great purpose of Jesus' life is culminating at the cross. The rule and the reign of God is bursting forth through the sun, culminating at the cross. We're right in the middle of Jesus heading there. And the closer he gets, the greater clarity his message starts to become, or starts to have. The rule and the reign of God is breaking in. It's bursting forth through this king. It's seen in his ministry. He's teaching it in his preaching. And this whole recent section, if you sort of backed up to Luke 17, verse 11, and you worked all the way through chapter 18, it's all swimming in kingdom teaching and theology. Jesus has taught that the kingdom is now, and the king is here. He says that to the Pharisees. And then he says, the kingdom is coming, and the king will come. Jesus says that to his disciples. The king must suffer now. He will come in glory soon. The king has brought justice and is bringing justice now, and he will bring justice soon. And Jesus has much to say about what the people of the kingdom are like. There are people who turn and return to the king. They have a singular devotion to the king's rule and reign. The king will come. 
and he will gather his people together. And all of that's moving in one direction. It's all moving toward the cross. The life of the king, Jesus, it culminates at the cross. But here's the other reality. As the king's people, our lives are lived in the shadow of the cross. The people of the king, those who submit to his rule and his reign are shaped by the cross. Because as the king's people, all the wondrous gifts of the king are ultimately made ours at the cross. And so as those who live under the king's rule and the king's reign, we live in the shadow of the cross. Jesus did so because his life was headed there. We do so because our new life begins there. So Jesus lives in the shadow of the cross because that's where everything is moving for him. We live in the shadow of the cross because that's where everything moves from for us. Jesus' life in the shadow of the cross and that's where he's heading. Our lives in the shadow of the cross because that's where our lives ultimately began. Tim, what about Luke 18? Okay, let's reread. Luke 18 9 to 17, because now Jesus has something to say about what gains entrance into the kingdom. How is it that the king's people enter into the king's kingdom? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted people were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them but when the disciples saw it they rebuked them Jesus however invited them let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these truly I tell you who Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. What's the parable and the teaching instructing us about? Entering the kingdom. Look ahead really briefly. It's an interaction that Jesus has with this rich young ruler. And the whole thing is about How is that rich man going to enter the kingdom of God? Then Jesus, at the end of chapter 18, gives the third prediction of his death. Everything's headed to the cross. Everything's moving in that direction for Jesus. And that is ultimately where the king's people receive mercy so that they might enter the king's kingdom. Everything's going in one direction here. The king's people are entirely dependent upon the king's mercy. So that ultimately raises a question. Well, what are we supposed to see about entrance into the kingdom? How is it that we 
enter? Well, we start with a picture of this selfless individual, this Pharisee. Notice right away, when you read the Pharisee's prayer beginning in the middle of verse 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. That ought to clue you into the issue right away. The issue that Jesus is bringing to the forefront here is that self-righteous people will not be able to justify themselves. Self-righteous people will not enter the kingdom of God. And so one of the main applications this morning is a hard look at our own hearts to ask the question, do I think that righteousness exists within myself? Am I self-righteous? Well, we would need to provide a definition for what self-righteousness is. And thankfully, the narrative description here in the parable gives us a pretty good definition. Self-righteousness is moralistic. I'm not greedy. I'm not unrighteous. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not like other people. And that's the real rub. Our moralistic self-righteousness has to come from one place and one place only. And that's gotta be in comparison to other people. Because if you held yourself up to the actual standard of righteousness, the holiness of God, you would fall woefully short. So you know you can't do that. So you, you switch the gaze to someone else and you hold yourself in comparison to them. How does my righteousness compare to that person? If we're gonna seek to justify ourselves based on our own morality, it's going to have to be in relation to someone that we deem less moral than ourselves. And we would conveniently ignore everyone who is obviously more moral than us. The real issue is that person, and I'm not like that person. I'm not like those people. Not greedy, not an adulterer, fill in the blank of whatever their sin is. I'm not like that. And so in probing our own hearts, we've got to honestly face the question. Do I think my merit before God rests upon my moral standing? Do I think that when I come before the Lord in my moment of judgment, that ultimately what's going to save me is my own sense of morality? And now if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time or you've been going to church for a long time, it's easy to just dismiss that question very quickly. Oh, well, of course not. Like really probe your heart. Like when you think about your own righteousness, How do you think about it? As filthy rags, we're told, as what all of our righteous deeds would look like before the pure spotless nature of the holiness of God? Or do you think of it as, well, better than that guy? Self-righteousness isn't just moralistic, it's also performative in a religious sense. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Look at how pious I am, God. Aren't you thankful for me? 
Look at all the religious stuff that I do. I'm right before you because of my religious activity. And the real like rub here for the Pharisee is that what he is saying he does in a religious sense is actually beyond what the law requires. So God, you have told us to do fill in the blank, but I go even further. You've said, God, it's good for us to gather at church, but I also go to my small group. And I also have an accountability partner. And I also serve. Now, those are all wonderful things, but if you think they're gonna gain you entrance into the kingdom of God, you're gonna find, Lord, Lord, look at all this that we did for you. Away from me, I never knew you. So improving our own hearts, we've got to honestly face the question. Do I think my salvation, my merit before God, rests upon my religious activity? And in sort of Bible Belt America, that question is probably more damning for more people than the other one. Well, I grew up going to church. When did you... Receive God's grace for your salvation. Well, I've always gone to church. Look at me, God. I was always present. My seat, my seat, my bottom was in the seat, right? And then take all of that together and the picture of self-righteousness that you get is ultimately that it is arrogant. I, 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 I'm better morally than those other people. I'm better religiously. So in probing our own hearts, we've got to honestly face the question, do I think my merit before God rests upon anything that starts with the word I or begins with the thought of me? Because that's the bottom line with self-righteousness. Self-righteousness begins with the word I or with the thought of me. Let me give one more diagnostic here on self-righteousness. Because true righteousness, biblical righteousness, should not only come with behaviors that align with the word of God, but it ought to come with a disposition that matches that of Jesus. So if your righteousness makes you more arrogant, more prideful, it very well may be self-righteousness. As we grow in our holiness and we grow in our righteousness and we are sanctified in that sort of way, it ought to become clearer and clearer just how large the gap is between a holy God and a sinful human being. And that ought to breed humility in us. A disposition that matches that of Jesus. And it's important to note the way the disciples would have heard this. It's going to help color what happens next. Jesus is really sticking it to the Pharisees. Right? I mean, we are told he actually looked at the Pharisees and told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Like, this is not, let me teach my disciples and understand that other people are listening. This is, listen here, Pharisees. And there are actual tax collectors among the disciples. So Jesus draws this parable. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And some of those tax collectors are thinking, yeah, 
Take that, religious people. And then watch what happens. Jump down to verse 15. People were bringing infants to him so he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them. Let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What do the disciples turn around and do right after hearing the parable? Stop bothering Jesus with these babies. Like, these babies can't merit anything from Jesus. These babies can't do anything to deserve his blessing. Please, leave the teacher alone. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And Jesus isn't referencing some inherent quality of goodness that exists in children, but not by comparison in adults, right? We're not to hold up the fact that babies or infants are hopeful or optimistic or simple or joyful or whatever the case. You maybe had a really rough experience with your infant this morning and you're thinking there's nothing about this child that could possibly inherit the kingdom of God. Look, all the wonderful sort of sentimental thoughts that we have about babies are fantastic. But that's not what's happening here because that mindset didn't exist at this time. Children weren't held in high sentimental regard in that culture like they are in ours. The disciples tell the crowds to stop bothering Jesus with the babies for a simple reason. Everyone agreed the children had low standing, no value, no merit, no achievements. The children are a hindrance and annoyance. And in the disciples' eyes, they can't do anything for Jesus. They're not good enough to merit his time. It's a similar way that the Pharisee in the parable viewed the tax collector standing in the temple when they prayed. The disciples have now flipped the script. These babies don't deserve Jesus' time. There's a self-righteous streak that exists in us because of the reality of sin. But the rule and the reign of the king does something different in the king's people. It creates something different inside those who are transformed by the rule and the reign of the king. Something that causes us to turn away from thoughts of I and to give all our attention to the king. Look at the tax collector, verse 13. Standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector knows that only one thing matters and it's not about him. He's standing off to the side. He won't even look up to heaven. No one look at me. No one see me. No one hear me. He's beating his chest, which was a sign at that time of grief, extreme grief and anguish. And he has a simple plea. God, have mercy on me. There's no comparison to other people. The comparison's to God. I am a sinner. There's no rehearsing of his resume. I can't do anything for him. Only one thing can help him, and it's entirely about God. God is holy. This man understands that he is a sinner, and his only hope is that God would be merciful. That's it. Nothing else. He's entirely dependent upon the mercy of God, and that is the picture that we're supposed to get about the king's people. They are entirely dependent upon the king's mercy. 
That's the thing that we're supposed to draw away from the young children, the babies teaching. They're dependent on mom and dad for everything. They're hungry, they cry. They're uncomfortable, they cry. They're thirsty, they cry. They don't feel good, they cry. The diaper's rubbing the wrong way, they cry. They need to burp, they cry. And they can't fix any of it themselves. They need mom and dad. Jesus says, you see that tax collector? You see these children? That's what the people of the kingdom are like. They're entirely dependent. They're not dependent upon anything within themselves. It's God's mercy or there's no hope. It's the king's mercy or there's nothing. The people of the kingdom understand that. So put everything together. All of Jesus's life is lived in the shadow of the cross. All of his teaching is seen in light of the cross. All of his miracles are seen in light of the cross. Ultimately, at the cross, he's going to grant all of the blessings of his sinless, perfect life to his people. So where is it that the king's people would find mercy? Someone say it. The cross. Right? It's the cross. That's where the covenants and promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled. It's the cross where Jesus is displayed King and Lord. The cross where the kingdom of God breaks the stronghold of Satan and his evil. It's the cross where judgment falls upon the sun, where salvation is secured for a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, where mercy triumphs, where grace is extended. And the great mercy of the cross is that we don't have to stand there like a Pharisee and present our resume. Because if we did, we would fall woefully short. We'd be sunk if that's what we had to do. But mercy is mercy because something wildly different happens. The great mercy of the cross is that the king gives himself to his people. Like that is the beauty of what happens at the cross. That is ultimately what Jesus does when he goes there. He goes to the cross and he says, you don't owe me anything. I'm giving you me everything. Like that's the beauty of the cross. And the mercy of the cross is that the king gives himself to a people who do not deserve him. No Pharisee standing in the temple could have earned what Jesus gives to his people on the cross. No person who sits in a pew today and says, well, I've always been Christian because I've always come to church could possibly merit what the king does when he gives himself to his people. The king gives us his moral perfection. That's mercy. The king gives us himself and he invites us into these practices and these rhythms because through them we experience relationship with him. That's mercy. That's what we get at the cross. We get the king. And we often want the king's benefits. And those are absolutely available to us. But first and foremost, what we get is the king himself. That's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee thinks he can earn his way into the kingdom. The tax collector knows that the only way in is by the mercy of the king, and it is at the cross where the king in his mercy gives us himself. There's nothing else in the message this morning. Not like seven great points, application for how it is that you sort of rejoice in the mercy of the king. It's just your only way in 
is by throwing yourself at the feet of the cross. That's it. I'll wear that message out from this place throughout the rest of my career. And if we walk away from that time and you're here for a long time, God bless you. And you have to listen to me for a long time, God bless you. I hope at the end of it all, you say to yourself, he said a lot of stuff. But mostly what he said is that it was all about the king and the king's mercy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if the repeated realization that in the king's mercy he has given us himself is not enough to stir us to worship, then maybe we've not experienced the king's mercy. Maybe you're standing in the church and what you're actually declaring is, God, I've earned you. And what you're really doing is worshiping yourself. Rather than standing as brothers and sisters in Christ, this new community shaped by the king who would stand here and say, we don't deserve to stand before the Lord. And yet in his mercy, he's not only granted us entrance, he's given us the king. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. The son went to the cross to give mercy. His whole life is in the shadow of that event. We go to the cross to receive mercy and then our whole new life is in the shadow of that event. And if you're still standing here thinking that what you really need to do is start your defense before the Lord with the word I or with thoughts of me, please understand that that will never be enough. I'm gonna give two minutes of another pastor who says this better and more vividly than I could. If you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you, were, you, were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we just a few questions for you, first of all. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man 
on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. I want to paint one final picture here, and we're actually going to sing about it. The wonder of all wonders in your moment of judgment before the Lord is that when you walk into that moment, God isn't even going to look at you. If you've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, he's going to look at the Son, not you. And so you could be standing there trying to recount your resume and all the things that have earned you that spot, and the King is going to look at his Son. And it's not going to be about you because it was never about you to begin with. It's always been about the king and his mercy shown to us in the giving of his son for the sake of his people. And so here and now we have to remind ourselves of the reality that entrance into the kingdom is all about the king's mercy. So we sing songs with words like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Hallelujah. The king in his mercy does not need your resume. The king in his mercy has the resume of the son, and you need that. And in his mercy at the cross, that's what he gave you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.